Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. In the spirit of ANU's motto, which is first to know the nature of things, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and waterways, which were never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. I ask the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Look, I'm going to uh, shirt from Mr Putin. I am a fighter and not a fighter. I don't think, I know. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. Fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. G'day there, Mark Kenny with Democracy Sausage from ANU. Comes to you each week, as you know, and there aren't too many shows left in the week. My co-host is Dr Maria Tafalaga, political scientist at the School of Politics and International Relations here at ANU. Hi there, Maria. Hi, Mark. Hi, everyone. It's been a long year, hasn't it? A very long year. Mm, it does, it's, it's, it's been long. It's been kind of arduous. I think, obviously, the big thing has been the voice. Yes. And we can talk about the politics of that. That's what we're going to do today is just you and me have a bit of a, a chat about um, some of the interesting aspects of of where we are with politics at the moment and some of the forces underneath all of that, what it means, whether it means anything. I think that's actually a pretty a legitimate question. question. Yeah, because, you know, as uh, as has been noted before, I think I've noted here before, governments tend to struggle in their first terms. It's interesting that there's only been, well, since, when was the last one-term government? It was 1929. That is, that it was elected in 1929, the Scullin government. During the Great Depression. Yeah, it took a Great Depression to uh, to sort of wipe it out. And a Labor split. And a Labor split. Sure, things were uh, pretty robust. edgy. Yeah, robust. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's right. So that's in 1931, I think. And then you've got to scroll all the way forward to um, well, to where we are now. And there's some talk around the commentariat that this government is in trouble. It's you know obviously it won last year last year, but um, it sort of won really by not being Scott Morrison. It you know had a very low primary vote coming in. I think a record low primary vote for a winning government. Yep. And there we have it. Uh, you know, uh, it's a it's a slim margin to defend, and we have people saying, "Well, it's 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 struggling now on a range of fronts." We can get into that, but I just think it's worth saying at the at the beginning that it's not abnormal for first term governments to struggle. Yes, it's a long time since we've had a single term government. You know, a government getting tossed out at the first time it goes back to the to the voters. But it's also true to say, which seems to cut in the other direction, that virtually all governments, even if they go on to be long-term governments like Howard or Hawke or even um, the, the most recent coalition government, three terms, they all go backwards when they first go to the voters. You know, Howard yes. did in 98, Hawke did in 84 before that. Yeah, I think the only one that might have actually, I think Fraser might be the only outlier in that. And that was in part because Whitlam was still leader of the opposition 
And yeah, so and, that's and, right. So you've got that's between seventy five and seventy seven. Exactly. So you've got the dismissal election in seventy five. Exactly. And then the route in seventy seven. Exactly. The Labor route exactly. as in. Yeah. And that one is definitely the outlier. Like if you, if, if you look historically, um, you know, Whitlam went backwards. I actually don't remember exactly what happened to to Menzies in his first term, but he certainly lost the Communist Party referendum. Mm. And, you know, the, those um, early 1950s elections were, were actually a lot tighter because it was before the the, the, the third Labor split. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, another yeah. Labor split happened in it, the 50s, which it, it, didn't go well for Labor for a long time either. Exactly, exactly. And I guess the context of this discussion is sort of multiple fold. One is, you know, the, the outcome of the voice uh, referendum. It's the end of the year. And, you know, there's been a rash of polling um, essentially showing a sort of decline in, in the government's uh, level of support and, and, and some mutterings um, that you might expect from within, within Labor um, around it. Um, Not much muttering, though. No, I mean, no, no. Th- there's no serious muttering. I think there are people who are worried about where the government is Which at is the moment. Which is rational. They're worried about not so much what the numbers are, because of reasons we've just talked about, governments do tend to go through these midterm slumps and these first-term difficulties, uh, partly maybe even a degree of buyer's remorse or whatever it is that, that voters experience or expectations that were a bit too too high for, for what the government was going to be uh, and what it tends, you know, what it ends up being. But I think what they're worried about isn't so much the numbers in the polling as the reasons behind the numbers or at least the reasons they put behind the numbers because we can't really know in any sort of um, totally reliable way what causes these kinds of poll slumps. Uh, it, it, it's, it's probably, you know, multifactorial. But, Absolutely. But the, the concern that I've picked up speaking to Labor people and certainly that's reflected in some of the commentary as well is that things have come up that the government hasn't, Sort of responded as energetically or as forthrightly as as it might, um, and one suggestion I think David Crow made this point on the couch on Insiders on the weekend that it's it's sort of like the government's radar for things coming up for problems hoving into view whether whether it's attuned enough to the political dangers as they arise, and and of course the big one here is the High Court decision which ruled indefinite detention uh, unlawful and ordered the release of, uh, I think, about 142 people, or at least that's what the government decided. The decision applied to 141 or 142 uh, people who were, who, were, who were not able to be returned to another country. Uh, they were non-citizens of Australia, unable for, uh, for, for a couple of different reasons, variety of reasons not to be returned, but who were on character grounds not, not uh, deemed fit and reasonable to be allowed into Australia. So in some cases, they'd served custodial sentences for serious crimes, but when they'd come out of the custodial sentence, they were then kept in indefinite detention. The High Court decided, no, you can't do that. That constitutes punishment, and and that really is the province of courts rather than an administrative function of government. Uh, that seems to be, you know, that's it in a nutshell. But what really caught the government off on, on, on the hop with all of this is that not only did the court deliver its decision 
at the end of the proceeding, there was an application uh, from one of these uh, prisoners, one of these detainees, um, and the, the case went to the High Court, and the High Court handed down its decision at the end of the case, which caught everyone by surprise. It also did so without then providing it's the reasons. reasons, and the reasons, of course, are critical because then how do you patch up about it? The government's initial position was to say, well, we're going to wait for the reasons. That seemed to be the case, but... Uh, within a few days of, of of the opposition going absolutely kind of bunter, um, the uh, the government felt that uh, well we need to we can't you know we can't let this whole nightmare wash over us again as happened in previous Labor governments with border border security and all that and um, the and Malaysia so you, solution and the negotiations over that for example correct yeah correct and and the idea of you know that whole area that has been. Dutton and Morrison's province and about which they've managed to whip up fear in the past. And Labor sort of read the writing on the wall. There was that emergency legislation. Then the decision, uh, the, the reasons for the decision did come down. And, of course, the latest development is that a couple of these people, even in the few days since they've been released, have allegedly committed new crimes. One of them, some sort of sex offence, and the other one, I think, a cannabis-related related offence. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, that's uh, that's kind of a political nightmare in a sense for the government. I think there's a few dimensions to this, which which are which are sort of interesting. Like you know, one, it's just terrible headlines on an issue that not only does the coalition own, but Dutton in particular owns. Right, he's very comfortable on this ground. Um, it's his natural hunting ground. It's also sort of the key orthogonal cleavage that um, hacks off. Uh, left voting or conservative left voting people and moves them into right party columns, right? You know. So, so just to unpack that a bit. So, what you're saying is, people who might have been habitual Labor voters, right? Um, yeah. So, okay. So, actually, you're right. I'll take two steps back. So. Typically, the way we understand voting behaviour is that economic factors typically drive most results. Depending on how long election cycles are, that might be prospective or retrospective. When terms are shorter, they tend to be prospective. So Australians typically look forward to which party they think will offer better economic outcomes, whereas in the UK, the term's very long, so they tend to vote to punish, which was a study done by McAllister and I think his colleague Helwig a couple of years ago. And so that's the basic cleavage in, in, in society. It's, it's, it's the sort of original identity politics. If you think about it, that's what class is. So don't let anyone tell you identity politics is new. That's rubbish. And what immigration it is, it's just total rubbish. Um, and what immigration does is it's, um, you know, it's we call it orthogonal. That just means it's a diagonal line that cuts across that traditional left-right cleavage splitting off a portion of voters, right? And you can, th you can think about it along the lines of material politics versus progressive or, or, or post-material politics. So, you know, people interested in the environment and, and social justice around uh, LGBTQ rights or right, rights for minorities um, would be seen as post-material, right? And, and people who are concerned about working conditions, you know, need for the poor, basic services would be material, okay? And essentially what immigration does is to break that cleavage and provides a pathway for people who might have voted Labor their whole lives to to move to the right, not necessarily to the coalition, but to places like One Nation. And then those voters might move around. Some return back to Labor and, and some just keep moving through like either the coalition or others. And it's part of the de-alignment 
that we're seeing, right? It's not the only reason, but it's part of that. And dealignment is this idea that uh, that's a major, the, the sort of long-standing loyalties uh, that people have to one side or the other are breaking down. Yes, and and I think what's important to understand is that Australia is quite an extreme case of strong party loyalty, mm. right? You know, with 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 uh, traditionally 80% of voters attached to one party or an, or another, which is very high, and that that has precipitously declined over the last 30 years. And the trend is such that, you know, the people in the field are now comfortable saying it's not a blip, it's a trend, mm. and, you know. And so, so immigration has been one of the ways that the coalition has really successfully done that. You know, another might be around the rise of sole traders and certain changes to the way unions operate and function. And then, you know, we have that myth about the Howard Battlers, which was really actually a one-term election effect. But the point of all of this nerd speak is is to sort of say that this is like when we sort of when we think about it in in hard tack political terms, this is really bad timing for the government because it's one more thing in a series of you know bad news stories for the government. It's great for the opposition because it's the issues that they own and they can make hay on it. And 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 there is also there is an important procedural dimension here, which you alluded to, which is it's not as if governments haven't been warned that the judicial precedent that they have been relying on for essentially twenty five years mm. um, wasn't on shaky ground, and so or, or, or just even if they took a, a, a risk averse approach, that it was yeah. up for question. That the High Court does have the power, unlike uh, less senior courts, it does have the uh, power to overturn its own precedents. And exactly. that's what it did here, right? It reinterpreted the constitution, it reinterpreted the government's power and it applied a different, it came up with a different answer. Exactly. That must have been considered at least a possibility, at least a contingent possibility yes. going into that case. And if it wasn't, like, you'd really be questioning the advice of your public servants, for example. And, I mean, I think what's interesting actually is that Labor got caught out before by a high court judgment on immigration, right? The Malaysia mm. solution mm. was ruled down. So I think that's interesting that that corporate memory isn't there. And the second is is that, like, for example, in a place like Canada, like this law would just never be constitutional because they have a right to habeas corpus, like it's in their Bill of Rights. Mm. We don't have that, right? And instead it's sort of been like constructed in an implied way where the lawyers would be able to actually tell you that in a much more sophisticated way than I have just have just now. And so there there is a process dimension, but I do find this argument that the government is seen to be like flat-footed managing issues kind of interesting, like um, – Events happen, right? Like that is that famous line from yeah. from from um, it's not Anthony Eden, it's the other one. Macmillan was it? Macmillan, it's Macmillan. Yeah, you know, and and I do think this expectation that governments anticipate all issues to be interesting and kind of reflecting an idea that governments should be managing the news more than managing government. Like I know that's a bit mean and a bit glib, but. I think it's an interesting way to criticise. Like, I think there are definite process administration issues, but the idea that the government should be um, focusing primarily on making sure nothing bad ever looks like it's happening in a time where we're living through an inflation crisis, there are two global wars pouring petrol on the fire of inflation, um, you know, the the global economy is on shaky ground and uh, the uh, the the weather is doing strange stuff like i just think that it is 
an interesting kind of thing to kind of emphasise, particularly when this government has, broadly speaking, been quite quietly and be- beavering away, pushing out policy solutions. Uh, you know, there, there were two pieces of important environmental legislation that came down last week. The government is working to clean up large immigration backlogs, which is linked to the housing crisis, you know, I mean, they, they, I mean, if you actually look at the list of promises they made and the number they have delivered, like they have actually done quite a good job of it, like, you know. But that's an interesting point because there is some sort of debate that's happening amongst Labor MPs about the extent to which you can rely on that. Someone said to me, words to the effect of, when you run a small target and cautious approach in getting elected and you and, and one of your key things is to promise you know, you promise to keep your promises Mm. and then you go about governing that way. That's fine, but you are keeping sort of by definition a low profile. It's, it's, it becomes an unexciting business. Now, as you say, events come along as well and events always can derail the best laid plans. What was that great line of Mike Tyson's? Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. Um, Um, the um, uh, and 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 the feeling was that if you are kind of constrained to only do essentially those things that you promised you would do, and you deliberately didn't promise much because you got elected on not being the other side, which I think is a a reduction, admittedly, but as good as any reduction on, on the way that Labor won that last election, that it it's running what is in effect an unexciting administration now. That ought to be a good thing. Catherine Murphy wrote about this on the weekend, you know, that if 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 procedural effectiveness can't compete with with the sort of hoopla of um and specul- spectacular uh, sort of ups and downs of of wild populism and and the sorts of things we've seen out of politics in particularly in the US but in the UK and a number of other places, then we're in a she called it shit creek and I think that's probably right. Yep. I mean, I know that the uh, Albanese government was a small target compared to the, or the opposition rather, to the shortened opposition. But I don't, I don't think that I don't think it's quite a fair criticism to say they were a small target in the in the way that we kind of think about other political parties that have successfully won office with a with a small target. And and I, I do agree with you. Like, you know, like you can't escape media management and message management. It's a huge part of politics now. But I it kind of goes to this point that you've just made and, and Catherine Murphy has made about the balance and whether or not we actually have the stabilizers in the system to actually remember like what the point of this is. Mm. The point of it is to actually govern, which is, you know, a fairly dry and bureaucratic set of processes where you have managed conflict and you achieve outcomes. And I mean, look, human societies have tried many alternatives and it turns out this shit show is the best shit show available. <laughs> so, 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 so I, I guess I, I, I am a bit concerned about some of the, I don't know how to articulate this well, but like it concerns me about some of these claims or, or, or criticisms that can be sometimes made by by senior press people who are very influential still, even even with their declining influence, around that balance between governance and and communication. And you're right, like 
Labor, Labor, it's not the 1980s anymore or even 2005. They can't, they can't necessarily rely on being seen as being a good kind of government. But part of that is to do with the way what they're doing is actually framed, right, you know, mm. and amplified because the reality is is that, you know, what, was, what made life a lot easier for Bob Hawke and John Howard was that they would go and talk to David Crow or Laura Tingle or, um, you know, a I can't, names are escaping me, Michelle Grattan. Michelle Grattan, yeah. Yeah, you know, and they would say that and, and that, that message would be, like if they could convince the gallery, they, they've done, like half the job's done, right? Now, you know, convincing David Crow, congratulations, 15% of the job is done. You know, that's, that, is, that is a real challenge for our political system, uh, uh, how to manage that. Like it, it still structurally favours negativity. It's been like that since basically Howard lost in 2007 and I doubt it will stay like this forever because it's already it's already less um, zero sum than it used to be where negative messages would just win out over others but it is it is a real kind of challenge and I, and I, and I think at the end of the day like the government is dealing with an inflation crisis that, that it has it has relatively few tools on which you can pull that are easy politically. Then there's a whole bunch which are a bit diabolical. And then there's a and then there's a whole bunch that are simply just not available. They don't have those powers or it's about international factors and not in control. And in some ways it's actually kind of amazing that the government is performing as well as it is, given the inflation crisis, the impact on interest rates, the housing crisis, and the fact that none of these things uh, have quick fixes that can be resolved. They're kind of hoping that economic events um, will turn in their favour and and the reality that the sort of um, pushing the can down the road on some kind of important and structural economic reform is getting shorter and shorter and shorter, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, let's continue this discussion in a moment. We'll take a quick break and uh, be back and talk about some of those factors like the economy and how that how that really I suppose, uh, really dictates whether the government succeeds or not in convincing people. Back in a moment. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. When the wind veered, the smoke was driven backwards revealing a most amazing scene. Standing Columns of Fire. To Be Continued is a new podcast that explores the rich world of lost literary fiction from Australia's past. It helps you to understand the way in which knowledge is kind of not something that's out there waiting to be discovered, but it's something that you create. To Be Continued is brought to you by the Australian National University and is available now on your favourite podcast app. Welcome back. Now, before we get back to our discussion, let me just uh, point this out to you. In two weeks, we'll be rolling out the red carpet for our fourth annual Democracy Sausage Awards. I bet you're looking forward to that, Maria. Absolutely. Night hot- of nights. Yes, night of nights. The hotly contested gongs include most flagrant and self-interested political backflip, maddest moment, and biggest dill. That's always a popular one, isn't it? Biggest dill for the year. Um <laughs> 
It's always very competitive. As well as a few more esteemed and perhaps respectable citations like Leader of the Year. Um, and I think last year it might have been Zelensky. Um, I, I think it was, yes. Yes, uh, quite deservedly so. Um, be an interesting discussion this year. Maria and I will be joined, of course, by our regular guest judge for this, a uh, friend of the show, Professor Frank Bongiorno, to hand out the prizes. But ahead of the show, we want to hear what you think, who you think deserves to have their name up in lights for their performance, or indeed lack thereof, in 2024. So if you want to put forward a nominee or propose a special 2024 category, something amusing ideally, send a message to us at democracysausage at anu.edu.au and uh, we'll look forward to reading your suggestions. Now, back to where we were discussing before. The let, Let's just sort of frame this because I'm looking at some polling that's out today. Uh, now, you know, there's a lot of polling around and, and, and some of it better than others, but none of it particularly relevant when you're this far out from an election, a point Brian Lochnane used to make to me quite frequently. <laughs> um, but what it shows, this is the Resolve Monitor poll out of the nine papers, the former Fairfax papers, and it has Labor's, it only does primary vote. They don't. They, they sort of did away after the uh, poll shock of 2019. They, they kind of recalibrated things and decided we're not going to talk about a two-party preferred vote anymore because you either have to construct that by asking people who gets your second preference or or you have to apply some other way of doing it, like um, like either making a guess about it on average, or you might you might the last election's preference. Yeah, flows. you might allocate yeah. preferences according to the way they went at the last election when there might have been some quite different dynamics at play. So they just do primary vote, and on primary vote they've got Labor at thirty five, and the coalition. So that's the two parties combined, the Liberals and the Nationals, on thirty four. You'd say that's pretty much neck and neck now. Uh, just by way of um, uh, of comparison with the election itself, as I said before, Labor had a 32.6% primary vote at the election, which is remarkably low for Absolutely. a winning party. Uh, and the coalition was at 34. So this goes to your de-alignment point. Absolutely. Uh, these these parties are in... Are these parties in, used to win with over 40% of the vote, close to 50, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And um, it is no longer the case. The Greens are on 12%, which is, uh, I think, down from... 13% uh, in a recent poll, but they were at just a bit over 12% at the last election. Uh, and, and and sort of rats and mice after that, independence on 9%. But I don't know, you can't really, the independence thing's very hard to measure because you don't have the same representation of independence across the nation exactly. and all those sorts of things. It would depend on the sample. Yeah. Yeah. Now, in the coverage in relation to this, um, I'm quoting from David Crowe's piece, he asks name better leader and party to manage immigration and refugees. 33% of voters backed Dutton and the coalition, while only 22% named Albanese and Labor, which reverses the government's lead on the same question from October. Now, October is not that long ago, so that does suggest that this issue has a lot of bite. A couple of things I'd say about it and, and, and throw to you, because you have a, an interesting point about that 33% that the government gets, uh, sorry, that the coalition gets. The thing I'd say, apart from recognising that there's a lot of sort of heat and light and dust and so forth around this question at the moment, is that in all my years covering politics and watching politics, I've always been quite amazed at how things that seem like major preoccupations in the end of the year feel like they were a long ago and they get forgotten into the new year. Now, that's not to say that these issues completely go away. 
But I think seasoned political campaigners and, and, and Albanese is nothing if he is not that, understand that the new year offers a reset um, and people, they might bring the same analysis to a problem that uh, that they might have brought the year before, but they do so afresh. They don't sort of, you know, sort of spend January carrying all these deep grievances about the underperformance of the government or whatever, unless they're politicos. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I mean, to be blunt, we're all tired. You know, it's the yeah. end of the year. Yeah. Um, and so that's definitely a part of it, right? And um, and I don't want to under I don't want to like I don't want anyone to think that the you know oh the government's fine. There's there's no issues here. Like there are, and I think we can talk about them in a minute. But I actually think it's interesting that forty five percent of the electorate doesn't think either major party can <laughs> handle immigration. Like that's kind of. That's wild. Um, or, or they're just not animated enough about it to, to, to have an opinion. Exactly, because they're too busy um, working out, you know, how they're going to pay their power bill, how yeah. they're going to pay their rent, yeah. how they're going to buy medicines, what are they going to forego. Yeah, um, or whether they should buy a massive ute. Well, yeah. Because, you know, plenty of people are still doing that. Well, that's right. I mean, and, yeah, exactly. And and I actually find it kind of fascinating that, that the, the coalition actually only owns one third of the electorate on, on an issue that they, like, they own as a, mm. as a lock, yeah. right? Which sort of goes to the overall structural weakness of, of both the, the major the parties, right? But I do think that at the end of the day, the next election is going to turn on the economy. Like essentially voters will judge which of these two outfits is best placed to navigate a storm, which is what we're what we're. Well, in. can I can I challenge that? I, yeah, I, go ahead. I, I think the I think broadly speaking, that's right. Although by the time the election comes around, I think Labor is thinking that this the the worst of this storm will have passed, and we're right in the eye of it at the moment. There's no question. You know, we've had 13 interest rate rises. Inflation has been very high, at least by recent standards for a, for a sustained period now. It may be starting to come off. There may not be any further interest rates. I'd be surprised if there is, but I said that before the last one. And assuming that it all starts to work, and it has worked, this sort of uh, policy in a number of other comparable democracies around the world who are actually starting to show much more rapid and effective uh, sort of coming off of falls of inflation. So Australia's has been quite quite sticky and persistent, and that, that that's a concern for for the Reserve Bank and for anyone who's paying a mortgage and for anyone who's, you know, trying to buy anything really, you know, who actually uh, is not wealthy and uh, needs to uh, needs to take into account prices, it's, you know, obviously a concern. But it may well be that as we proceed into next year, these things start to abate, these pressures. Uh, that must be the government's thinking as well. Uh, and that's why I make that point about the pressures that are felt this year and the umbrage that may or may not be carried forward and how long it is carried forward for into next year. I think if the outlook towards the middle and second half of, of, of next year is more favourable and 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 looking like it will continue to be more favourable by by projections, then I would expect that puts the government into a better position than it is in now. So I don't disagree with your point about the economy. I think it's absolutely right. But I think how the economy is is a big reason, a big explainer for for why uh, Labor is under some pressure yeah. at the moment, notwithstanding getting a number of its promises fulfilled and and being mostly um, scandal free and so forth. Yeah, no, no, no. That and that's that's a that's a fair point. And um, and the OECD um, would agree with you. I guess that I guess actually 
I don't think anything you've said is is consistent with with what I think. I, the 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 difference is actually, I suppose I'm thinking on a much longer time scale when I say a storm. Like I think that that the that we we have been in one type of storm now for for about fifteen years, right? Like we're going through like Australia, the world is going through a, a massive transition around technologies changes to the economy, climate change. And and even though the economic conditions might become less acute in a year's time, setting up the ability for the government to say, oh, look, we managed the inflation crisis, you should vote for us again, um, you know, which is what a smart government would do and, and, and a lucky government mm. would get. Mm. I, I don't think it actually changes any of the sort of realities of the structural problems that our country and other countries that look similar to us around the world are, are, are grappling with. And I guess this is a nice segue, Mark, into, you know, how is the government going to set itself up for re-election and um, an interesting shift in Dutton's political ambitions. It, it was implied before that Dutton was sort of aiming to push the Labor Party into minority, which is an eminently achievable goal because they have a two-seat majority. But now he's sort of arguing that that he wants to be a one he wants this to be a one-term opposition, which is a significantly different proposition, requiring the opposition to win a huge number yeah, of Yeah, basically of about seats. 18 or 20 seats. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I agree. Look, just before we go to that, mm. um, and going to your uh, the list of things that you think the, the the world is handling right at the moment. Would you also put into that list democratic decay? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I do think that, I mean, look, to be blunt, you know, governments around the world have been kind of faffing around mm. and and not taking on constituencies. I mean, everyone likes to talk about the golden age of reform in the 1980s and so on and so forth, but that actually required all of those governments to take on core constituencies. Why did they do that? Because they spent 10 years faffing around, basically, in the 70s. But also it involved, it set us up for some of these problems because the yes. golden age of reform was also the golden age of retreat by governments it, in, yes. in, in a range of different areas, right? Exactly. And so... We've we've had this handing over of, of of services and responsibilities functions that had been at least either either monopoly functions of government or fun, uh, areas where governments were involved. If we think about telecommunications, or we think about uh, airlines, or banking, or well, you know, even housing, right? and housing, yeah. exactly. Good point. Uh, yeah. and, and public transport, for example, it was you know something a lot of people interact interact with exactly. all the time. Um, or the power care, care industry, privatized. Profit-based care yeah. industries, yeah, yeah, school. Yeah. I mean, th- so this kind of mixed involvement in the economy has ha- a lot of that has been withdrawn, and government's capacity, therefore, to shape a number of these things as the as the kind of the the idea of uh, of efficient services became politically valorized as if it as if it was everything, right? And what we've found, and there are whole sectors of the economy now where we can see that results in terrible dysfunction. Terrible dysfunction. Yes, yeah, and 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 that and, you know, and that was a reaction to well, the state can do everything, which mm. happened after after World War Two. You yeah. know, we are imperfect kind of creatures, and I, I suppose what's another thing to be mindful of if you're an Australian is that most other countries have actually been like you know the, they didn't call it the global financial crisis, they called it the Great Recession. Yeah, 
you know, and if if you look at the rise of populist parties across Europe and and to a degree in the United States, like there's a reason for that. Like, you know, the world went through this enormous economic shock, which we just sort of got some heavy wins. Yeah. You know, and and now we are experiencing dimensions of that suffering whilst the rest of the world is actually doubling down on the consequences of the recession. The government choices, a lot of it was austerity-based. You know, if you look at the UK, like, why is it such a mess politically? Lots of reasons, but part of it was to do with austerity. You know, COVID on top of that, Brexit, and now this inflation crisis. Populist madness, frankly. Brexit being the most extraordinary example of that. I mean, talk about an act of self-harm. Absolutely extraordinary. Um, And then the way they handled COVID, I mean, um, uh, just... Just a disgrace at, at so many levels. I mean, it, as I heard someone say the other day, it's it, it sort of failed state-like territory in in, in some ways. The, the level of services, uh, the level of decay, really, that you see in the British system at the moment. So uh, they face an election next year, as indeed does the US, which yes. um, someone pointed out the other day is the first time for a long time, for a number of decades, that the US and the UK are two most sort of senior and and um, connected democracies with us are going to the polls in the same year. Well, I, I and th- they could go in radically different directions. I think it was you who said a couple of weeks ago that next year is actually the world's biggest election year ever. Mm. Like the most number of human beings will go through a, an election, like India, um, lots of other large countries. So it, it, it probably will be potentially a wild ride. I mean, like human societies are are currently experiencing a bewildering number of changes which are difficult for us to foresee and which governments are are attempting to respond to. Am I surprised that uh, people are struggling and unhappy? No, actually, it kind of it's sort of it sort of says something about the strength of institutions in a way and the strength of the processes that we have that, that some of these a lot of these problems are being managed in a way. Like are they are government systems responsive enough? No, um clearly not because it's taking too long to address um you know um like housing crises. There's a housing crisis in virtually every Western democratic country right now. The origins aren't always the same. Something that is called a housing crisis in one country to us looks like a blip, mm. right, you know, and, and so on and, and so forth. But the same issues are actually kind of cropping up everywhere. It's not just something sort of special here. But some of the same pathologies are also there, like, you know, an, an over-focus over on centralised decision-making by, um, you know, key political actors, an over-focus on political communication dimensions of, of governance rather than, like, actually the substance of, of, of things. And so I guess, like, in some ways I'm sort of saying, well, human societies have been through these things before, but there's actually no guarantee Right, no, that's right. that and, it will come it, out good. No, There's that's no right. guarantee. That's right. And and the scale of these things is, is enormous. I mean, the population's bigger than ever and the scale of the problems those bigger than ever populations deal with are uh, is, is also sort of almost exponentially bigger as well. So things like climate change, you know, a quintessentially definitionally global problem uh, that has all kinds of implications and some of them are existential and, and quite acute. Uh, and they're all heading in in that 
in that in one direction, which at the moment is a is, great concern. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the world's not responding to it, hasn't responded to it. Its politics has failed to respond to it, whether authoritarian or democratic, uh, has, has has failed to address this. Um, as you say, technology dramatically transforming the way we communicate with each other, the way we understand our place in the world, the way we understand our institutions, the way we delegate authority to others, you know, we volunteer or surrender authority to others to to run things, another way of saying trust. Yeah. Um, all of these things in flux at the same time. That's right, that's right. And there are huge advantages, Throwing right? a pandemic or two. Exactly, know? exactly. Or just the fact that we've sequenced the genome, right? Like the implications of that like are, mm. are moving through – um, you know, on multiple kind of fronts. And there's huge pluses and the capacity and capability of governments has gone up, but then there are also like huge complexities. And I mean, if you think on a kind of global scale, like the global South is experiencing this profound youth bulge, right? Like, you know, if you look at a lot of um, large countries that are not as um, economically developed, the average age of the population in Nigeria, for example, right now is, is 18, 19 years old. Um, that's quite common in other places yeah, like yeah. Iran. Afghanistan. Um, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, and when you've got an inability to provide the appropriate economic opportunities for these people, which is in part driven by climate change, and you've got huge young populations, it's correlated with conflict, right? Yeah. Like. I think the number of coups in Africa this year is higher than it has been for decades. Like we are living in disordered times. Mm. These are these are interesting times. You know, I never really wanted to live in interesting times. I kind of wanted to live in boring times. So, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, uh, and I suppose that where that takes us is that next year could be an election year for us too, as well. Possibly, right? or it may be early twenty-five, but. Um, what the government needs to do, I suppose, really, uh, is to is to is to have its house in order to uh, to to continue doing that thing of, of of orderly government, a delivery on its promises. But it's going to need to do more than that. It's going to need to have the sort of macro political conditions uh, become more favourable. Uh, and and as we discussed before, that there's at least some prospect of that. Uh, although there's there are also events that we don't know about that inevitably come along. Um, but it's also got to have a story, a narrative about the future. Yep. Uh, you have to have a reason to be re-elected, especially when you're the government. You can't not be the opposition. Uh, you have to You have to be... Well, especially when you're a Labor government. Yeah, that's right. People expect that. And uh, I think there was a big degree of relief when um, when the, the last shambolic do nothing government was was dispatched, uh, particularly Morrison himself, whose whose um, whose deceits uh, were were not even fully understood. I'm thinking of his multiple ministries, for example, yes. uh, at the time that the government was got rid of. Morrison's still there, by the way. Why, I don't know. Um, and uh, um, but the, but the government is cannot take it for granted. The thing it has going for it, which is which is sort of odd in a way, is the teals. Yes, it doesn't yes. have – it has a three-seat majority. It became the first government in 100 years to actually increase its majority mid-term when it won the Aston by-election. So you know that shows records can be broken. But uh, that's, that, that was a high point really for the government early in its term, relatively early in its term. But it's only a three-seat majority. So as we were saying at the, at the top of this podcast – 
First-term governments often go a bit backwards. This government can't afford to go very far backwards before it's in minority territory, but at the same time, if Dutton's not going to make inroads and he doesn't even seem to be trying uh, to make inroads into those teal seats, and in fact there's a likelihood that that uh, the six teal seats could become seven with, with Bradfield Paul Fletcher's seat, that voted yes in the, um, in, the, in the recent voice referendum. It's the only such Liberal seat to do so. Exactly. So uh, I, I would think there's some prospect for the Teals to all hold their seats. Can't guarantee it, of course, but there's some good prospects for that, partly because Dutton's not even campaigning for them, not even sort of signalling to them or gesturing toward them. No. And though that, that sits there as a, as a big buffer, a big sort of protection between this government and the other side being able to put together a majority. Yes. I mean, I think that, um, you know, Dutton's clearly going for us, you know, he, he said it on his, on his first day in the job mm. that he's going for the for the outer suburbs and I think... Um, the regions, I, yeah. In, in the regions. And I, I, it's an interesting kind of strategy if you think about it. Like I can see it working um, and he's done a lot of quiet stuff in, in places like the Hunter and Patterson and, and things like that in the northern mm. New South Wales coast, which are, are less multi-ethnic and diverse. And a lot of what he says I can see having appeal out there and some of it might ultimately depend on how those communities are feeling about the transition to to green technologies, right, because that's a big part of the, the industry mix. But some of the ways that Dutton has chosen to navigate the Israel-Palestine debate, like I don't see that. I see that complicating things for him in parts of the outer suburbs of Australia, yeah. which is the other areas where he was sort of interested in looking to pick up seats. This is where he is too punchy, right? Because here he is sort of calculating this. He's, he's looking for those seats in the outer suburbs of Melbourne and and, and Sydney, um, you know, those Labor seats where there's a where there's a blue-collar vote but which is socially conservative uh, and where there are large Arab and Muslim communities, for example. And, and yet he's seen this Israel-Hamas uh, war um, and or the war being waged on Gaza, really, um, and uh, he has uh, he, he's seen this as a political opportunity, and and the difficulty for, you know for that to is to split labour, yeah, to split yeah. labour, you know, to to sort of cause this embarrassment for labour. You're not you're not you know you you're not standing up strongly enough and absolutely enough and in an unqualified way in defence of Israel's right to defend itself. That's the sort of argument, uh, of course. There are, of course, Israelis who take the view that what's going on is um, is unconscionable. Uh, you know the nature of the war there. There are others who who don't think that. You know, there's a very there's a very strong debate there's, about this. There's so a lot of multiple positions here. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, and 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 the atrocities that began it all. Uh, it's completely understandable that there would be this high level of emotion and investment in it. Uh, but um, that that shouldn't that shouldn't preclude the idea that you can look at these things and 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 try and arrive at, at a position and that there can be those multiple positions. But Dutton, on the other hand, has decided to sort of take this short-term political dividend of of attacking the government for not being strong enough in defense of Israel, which is an ally, he says. Um, I mean, I'm not saying it's not, but it's an interesting argument to put up. Um, uh, really, it suggests that ally in relation to what? In in relation to a sort of a, a values conflict with Islam? Is that what he's saying? I don't know. I can't think of a circumstance where Israel would be a defence ally of Australia um, in, in 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 a sort of a territorial strategic sense. I th- look, I think everything he has said on this subject dovetails with his comments 
um, around immigrants he values and immigrants he thinks are more suspect or unwelcome. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he famously made the remark about um, Lebanese uh, Muslims uh, about five or six years ago. Um, that was incredibly inflammatory. And I think what is actually really interesting about the the politics of, of this is if you actually look at other um, – the Israel-Palestine conflict is causing a lot of difficulty for political systems around the world mm. because um, many of the same – diaspora patterns of, of migration and the same sort of structural dimension, which we've talked about before, about the relative um, voice that those communities have and having how that has shifted over the last 20 years is playing out. So Justin Trudeau has essentially, due to pressure from his own party, and essentially now started to openly criticise Israel. You know, Keir Starmer was booed by Labour Party figures for essentially holding a much more straight diplomatic uh, line. You know, the Canadian opposition leader is not really interested in buying into this debate at all, wants to stay right out of it because he wants to hack the government away at climate change policies and stuff like that. And so, you know, like um, when you look at it comparatively, Labor's handled this debate quite well in terms of giving space to giving space to the multiple points of view that that labor people represent right and the realities of our strategic relationships and our alliance with with Israel and 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 so on and so forth and i know that is very clinical and that diminishes the actual real human suffering um um, but in some ways, if we're going to talk about the political dimensions, we, we need to be able to to separate that bit off. And I, but I, I do think that Dutton has potentially underestimated the um, like the emotional dimension for 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 some voters, um, and that yeah, for the voters that in, in, that his other strategy, exactly. his, his biggest strategy in terms of trying to make gains in in those. Labor seats. I mean, he may have just calculated these people don't listen to me anyway, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> but I, I do wonder how he intends to win those seats. And it, it sort of also dovetails with, with these communities that got hit really hard, like especially in Sydney, um, on the lockdown stuff with that yeah. different, differential treatment of these, Between East and of West these communities. Suburbs, yeah. you know? I mean, like in some ways these are natural constituents for the coalition in the sense that the sort of socially conservative respect for religion dimension, yeah. um, aspirational, right? Like – the coalition does this all the time. It it struggles to work out how to make people who are natural sympathists because it, it struggles to work out how to have a more inclusive conception of the nation. Yeah, it's a very interesting point. Look, I think we'll have to leave it there. Um, we'll be back again next week, of course, with another Democracy Sausage. Um, that uh, email address I gave before is democracysausage at anu.edu.au if you want to Give a suggestion for any Please of those do. categories. Yes, uh, either a category or indeed uh, um, a, a, um, a person, a nomination that you want to sort of put forward for, uh, with, with the reasons for it, of course, why you think it fits whatever category it is that you think it fits. It's not exactly a science. This, <laughs> I think no. it's fair to say, wisdom of crowds, guys. Yeah, yeah that's right. Uh, we look forward to that, uh, but we'll be talking to you about something more serious in the meantime. So, thanks, Maria. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Bye for now. <laughs>